Textile Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to the Deus Textile Podcast, a place where some of the most progressive and innovative builders, thought leaders, and traders in the crypto space come together to discuss all areas of the crypto industry. Whether you're into DeFi, Layer 1s, Layer 2s, NFTs, or anything in between, we've got you covered. And as a reminder, nothing said on this podcast should be construed as financial advice or as a solicitation to buy or sell any digital asset or security. The comments, views, and opinions expressed by the hosts or guests on the podcast are their own. As always, you'll need to do your own research. Now, with that out of the way, let's get to the episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Deus Ex Dow podcast. I am your host, Brucey, and joining me is my co-host and DED council member, Cerberus. Uh, we're very, very excited today because we have the team from Dam Finance with us. Uh, hey, Joshua. Um, we got the opportunity to meet him at, I think, ETH Berlin, um, and uh, they have been doing some incredibly exciting stuff in the under-collateralized lending space. So I'm going to pass the mic. Joshua, welcome. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Yourself? Doing great. Um, do you want to start us off and tell us a little bit about Dam Finance? Yeah, so DAMM is kind of the brainchild of myself and Peter Sokolow um, at System9. Um, kind of, we built DAMM um, kind of to resolve an issue we saw in the lending and borrowing space on chain, specifically that, you know, there exists a lot of under collateralized lending protocols for things like stable coins for USDC, USDT, maybe even BUSD, but no one is lending anything but those three assets on chain. And so DAMM is the first protocol to do under collateralized lending for any token. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of the, the high level of a DAMM, kind of the two second pitch. That's great. And how did it all started? Like, why did you want it to go beso- besides, you know, only USD assets and focus on the long tail assets as well? Yeah, so I guess that kind of like segues into like my background and kind of where the idea came from. So uh, I, I started a market or I joined um, System 9 about two and a half years ago and started our altcoin market making desk. Um, originally, we you know were doing exclusively prop trading and then we built this altcoin desk that kind of ended up taking over the business. Um, and so we typically said so there would be a few deals every now and then where we might not get the contract with a token issuer, but we still wanted to trade the token. So we would go to like all the major centralized lenders, you know, guys like Genesis trading or Celsius or BlockFi. Um, and it would be impossible to get a borrow on most of the altcoins that we wanted to trade. Um, and so we thought, well, you know, if we have this problem, market, other market makers have to have this problem as well. Um, and so that's kind of where the uh, original idea came from. And so we started incubating this and building it internally at system nine. And then, uh, eventually, it kind of took on a life of its own, and we spun it out. And uh, System Nine is kind of the uh, you know one of the original investors in the protocol um, and helped spin it out. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the uh, I guess the the backstory. It's kind of you know comes out of it being basically impossible to borrow long tail assets. Um, and and what's interesting is you don't really see this problem happen in TradFi. There's not really an analogous problem like this because. In TradFi, they have super liquid stock lending desks. Um, you know, every major investment bank has a multi, you know, multi, typically dozen billion dollar 
stock lending desk that has basically every single stock that's on the New York Stock Exchange um, lendable at a pretty consistent liquid rate. Um, but in crypto, you definitely don't see that yet. So I think the crypto lending markets are super immature um, and it's going to be, uh, you know, maybe a long time till uh, till there's liquid lending markets in a lot of these tokens. So, yeah, that's kind of the uh, I guess the backstory. Yeah. Thanks for that. So um, I think for our audience, it'd be helpful if you can demystify market making. What does that actually mean? Yeah, market making is, uh, I would pr say, probably the most, um, I guess, gray area in crypto right now. I, I call it like the darkest corner of crypto. Um, you know, just to kind of give the market making landscape, really, there's kind of two major types of market makers. There's like your OTC trading firms. Um, that's like, I think, like the best example of that's like a Galaxy Digital Um maybe even like a Cumberland, you know, they're doing large buy and sell orders for institutional clients on exchanges. They're the guys that are like, you know, TWAPing uh, on major assets like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Um, very, very common. And they do a lot of volume. Uh, but the kind of market making side that, you know, specifically I joined at System 9 and kind of helped build up is kind of more the HFT side. Uh, I think like a good analogy for that would be like Citadel or like a jump trading where they're doing high frequency market making where um, kind of what a market maker at a very specific at a very technical definition is a trading firm that's providing um, you know bids and asks in the same market so they're both buying and selling an asset in the exact same market um, and that creates a market neutral position and that's very that's a very very core feature of market making is that it does not have a position on the market. Um, it's a market neutral strategy in general. Um, and so market makers are typically who you're trading against when you go on a centralized exchange and buy or sell any token. Um, if you go on Binance and trade, there's probably an over 75% chance you're trading against one of the biggest market makers in the space. Um, one of the biggest high frequency trading firms in the space, really. Um, and so, yeah, what they'll do is they'll take your order and they'll arbitrage your order against every other centralized exchange. So, you know, let's say you market buy 10 Bitcoin on Binance. Um, they will uh, hedge their position and arbitrage it against Coinbase, FTX, Kraken, you know, every exchange they're connected to. Um, so that's really the job of a market maker is to make liquid orderly markets. Um, and kind of that's who we're lending to. We're on the DAMM side. We're only lending to market neutral trading firms. Um, I think all you have to do is look back a few months at a firm called Three Arrows Capital to kind of figure out why we're only lending to market neutral trading firms. But um, yeah, it's a, it's definitely kind of the most risk averse uh, trading strategy in crypto, probably by far, I think. Uh, so, yeah. That, that's a great explanation. Um, so why is that important for that to exist? Because you said in TradFi that these uh, market makers um, exist in basically every asset type, um, but crypto is immature in that sense. And so why is that still the case? And why would we want m more markets to be liquid? I guess I'm kind of answering the question, but you could probably. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's actually, it, the, 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 it's pretty clear what the future is going to entail, which is it's going to look more like TradFi, right? Where every market has 20 market makers that are all borrowing from, you know, 10 different lenders that, you know, end up all making markets and doing tons of volume, just like TradFi. That's what a mature lending market will look like. 
Um, I guess the, the really interesting question uh, that comes that arises from that is, well, how did crypto get so backwards? Like if, if TradFi has got this really great model for how to do this, why has no firm done that in crypto? Um, and I think it comes down to the early market makers in crypto really built in these really weird incentive models that basically made it where they could make so much money um, you know, without using a lending firm and kind of convincing token issuers to bypass lending firms uh, and lending protocols, um, which I guess is maybe a little bit more on like the why market making is such a dark underbelly of crypto. Um, frankly, these are typically the way crypto market making works now for token issuers for like new tokens um, is a new token will get launched and they will go to a market maker and they will say, hello, market maker, um, we would like to give you, or the market maker will say, we would like 2% of your token supply or 4% of your token supply um, as a free loan with a free call option. Meaning, you know, they'll set the strike price. If you're not familiar with options, what they'll do is they'll set the strike price at like the launch price or maybe a TWAP of the first seven days of the launch price. Um, basically they agree on a strike price together. And then if the token ever goes above that, they get to sell that token for free profit. It's like they're getting a free venture investment in the token. And, um, you know, that kind of model has basically cut out in TradFi, the lending bank that usually would be in the middle. Um, and as a result, you get significantly less liquid markets because a token issuer can only afford to hire one market maker at a time. Um, and so that kind of creates this really weird market that crypto now has. That's kind of this dark pool market of market makers signing deals with token issuers. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very much looking forward to kind of changing that. So, yeah. And why do you think the traditional market making model hasn't uh, been accepted yet in, in the crypto space? Well, I mean, it, it's exactly that. I mean, there are a few big players in the market making space in crypto that really have cornered this market. There are a lot of the big brand name market makers and it's really against their incentives to move towards the TradFi lending model because it kind of eats into their margin on every deal. Um, but what we're trying to convince them is, uh, and I think our, our data is, you know, proving this as well, which is while it may be less profitable for them to move to the TradFi model on a deal by deal basis, it's much more profitable when you consider the fact that they'll get 10 or 20 or 30 times more deals. Um, and so that's kind of the, I guess, difference in the two models. It's right now it's so profitable for market makers to do those, those call option and loan deals. Um, and we're kind of showing them now and educating them on like, Hey, um, you know, here's kind of the way we see these markets moving eventually. And they agree with us that crypto is going to move into this TradFi model eventually. Um, I think it's just showing them that we're kind of the bridge there. The TradFi model is very much going around trust. Is that right? Uh, I don't think it's going around trust. I, don't, I think both models are kind of very similar. It's just a question of who are you borrowing from, right? So in the current crypto model, the crypto market making model is the token issuer is basically going and lending directly to the market maker. When in TradFi, what happens is uh, the bank will hold a ton of the stock on their balance sheet, whether it's lent to them from like their brokerage clients or it's lent to them or they actually hold the stock maybe. Um, and then they lend it to market makers directly. So they'll actually, the bank will be the, the intermediary lending the stock to the market maker. 
Um, and, and kind of the reason for that in TradFi is because if a market maker said to a company, like, it, it, can you imagine like Ken Griffith from Citadel, like calling up Tim Cook and saying, hey, Tim, we'd like to, you know, get 1% of the circulating supply of Apple stock with a free call option to make markets in it. Tim Cook would like drive to Chicago or wherever Ken Griffith is and be like, what the heck are you saying? Like, no way. We're, we're calling the SEC on you. What? That's absolutely not. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, um, I guess it, it's not really a problem of trust because both models are very centralized. It's much more of a problem of token issuers typically are very uneducated about what market makers do. And if they knew that there was a better model where they could have 10 market makers instead of one, uh, I think they would move towards it very quickly. So this is a great way to kind of sketch the, uh, the macro overview and why DAM is necessary. So maybe you can get into um, how you guys are seeking to attack this this problem, you know. Um, and it already strikes me that there's a difficult conversation to have with the market makers, but perhaps also a benefit to them accessing more long field tokens more easily. But then also there's like a conversation with the project. Yeah, definitely. So I think I think the way we're attacking this market is we're going after issuers first, and I think we've achieved a ton of success thus far. Um, so we're about to, we've passed a governance proposal with Redacted Cartel to seed a DAMM pool for half a million dollars in Butterfly, their governance token. Um, that's going to be coming online sometime this week or next. Um, we also have a live governance proposal as well with Woo Network, the exchange. Uh, they're likely going to be seeding, if the governance proposal passes, um, a million dollars in Woo tokens as well to lend to market makers. Um, so we have quite a bit of token issuer support already. Um, I'm very excited. We have a dedicated sales team going and speaking with token issuers directly and kind of showing them that there is a much better model for them um, than the traditional call option and loan model. Um, and we're even building models in that are kind of bridge pools where a token issuer can, you know, put up capital and then maybe provide 0% loan and maybe they give some kind of KPI-based performance uh, tokens liquidity mine to a market maker based on, you know, liquidity performance KPIs. So how much volume a market maker does, how much capital they deploy, kind of things like that that are very, very tangible KPIs to earn uh, rewards. So we're kind of looking at a lot of, a lot of avenues that way. Um, we've picked up a ton of stable coins thus far, and we're using the, we're going to be using the revenue from those stable coins lending um, to kind of boost our uh, altcoin pools by, you know, using those assets to kind of diversify our treasury and continue staking more and more altcoins on DAMM. Um, so kind of a multi-pronged approach like that, going directly to issuers as well as kind of, you know, using the revenue of the protocol to kind of build out the altcoin pools. Well, that's great. And so you mentioned that the most important actor is the issuer here because you need the tokens in order to uh, lend them out and you know making those markets but I'm also seeing uh, a borrower here so tell us for who exactly is this platform for is it for the issuer the borrower or the lender and how do you uh, compose all those three into one well, right now uh, is a pretty unique time in crypto. So typically speaking, the borrowers have had most of the control in the market. Uh, if you look over like the last few years specifically, there's been a, an abundance of lenders 
Um, but now that interest rates are rising, you know, lenders are beginning to have much more power in where they deploy their capital. And I think the best place to see that exactly is if you go look on like Maple Finance or like Clearpool or like TruFi, you'll see over the last year as the Fed's been hiking rates, um, the under collateralized borrow rates have just skyrocketed. So borrowers are becoming more and more desperate for capital. Um, and so that's exactly what you're seeing in terms of the rates they're willing to pay. So stable coins about seven, eight months ago, were borrowing at about six or 7%. They're now borrowing between 10 and 13% on the high end. Um, so it's kind of become a supplier's market in a sense. So there's never been a better time if you're a token issuer to lend your governance tokens or if you're uh, you know, a retail DeFi user to lend your stable coins or your Ethereum or your Bitcoin. Um, not in the last few years, at least. Um, on the borrower side, we do have a whole cast of really amazing market neutral trading firms. It's really great. They're, kind of something we've noticed is um, I would say about three years ago, DAMM most likely would not have been possible to launch because there was just not, there's just, there just weren't enough market makers in the space. I think there were probably only five capable market makers, maybe six at the time. But now so many traditional finance market makers have come into the space and so many new crypto native market makers have kind of come up um, on their own trading PLs that, you know, we're, we're seeing quite an abundance of market makers that are, you know, onboarding on our platform. I think we have about six now onboarded and we'll be issuing the first loans and announcing who the borrowers are this week. Uh, so very excited about that. Um, I would say I'm most impressed by the TradFi market makers coming into the space. It's really, really incredible to see how how quickly they're picking up all of the unique, weird facets of crypto and specifically crypto market making that you don't see in really in, in TradFi at all. Um, it's it's really impressive. So um, yeah, I would say that's kind of our, our, our borrower base and um, kind of the general landscape between borrowers and lenders. Uh, one of the challenges that strikes me that you have is basically you're bootstrapping a two-sided marketplace, right? Um, and we've looked at your app and it strikes us that on the, um, what is that, the lending side, well, it's permissionless, right? Like people can just deposit their tokens. And I think you guys have launched a liquidity mining program so that um, people can actually first deposit and compound or Aave and then take those tokens and have them be even more efficiently put to use in your platform, right? Um, yep. But then on, on the borrower side, that is permissioned, right? You guys are really underwriting these individual market makers to be delta neutral. And, um, you know, I, I think that'd be really interesting to dig into. So, you know, you mentioned some early successes with DAOs uh, and congrats on those. I think there are very many idle stablecoins or governance tokens that, that they have. Um, but they must also ask themselves, so what is the risk, right, with lending my governance tokens? Um, and having some familiarity with under-collateralized lending protocols, a lot of that depends on, okay, well, how good are you guys in underwriting these borrowers? And also, what will you do should they default? You know, what does recourse look like? So it'd be great if you can dig into that for a bit, like the selection and then also like underwriting process and what would you do in case something goes wrong? Yeah, so that's that's kind of the crux of this whole, you know, thing, I guess this whole protocol and why, you know, uncollateralized lending really wasn't a thing before the last two years, really, or the last year and a half, really. 
Um, so our, our internal credit risk procedure when we onboard a borrower, what generally tends to happen is, so we get an introduction to the borrower, we onboard them on Credora. Uh, Credora does all our AML and KYC and then provides us their uh, audited or unaudited uh, balance sheets, financial statements, revenues, monthly, quarterly. Um, we also get access to their read API keys and their wallet addresses. So we can see all of their assets in real time. Um, kind of the reason that's really valuable for us, not just to see their value, but also to see how exposed are they to market conditions. This is how we guarantee and can check that they're really a market neutral trading firm and not like a three arrows committing fraud and lying about being a market neutral trading firm. Um, so, you know, we're able to see, see their assets in real time on exchanges in their DeFi wallets and monitor that. Um, we have the ability as well uh, for recourse. We sign an MLA. This MLA is pretty standard across all these crypt all crypto. It's debt. Um, we're able to claw it back and recourse and you know pursue legal recourse in case of a default. Um, we have the ability to call any loan with 24 hours notice as well. Uh, our MLA is actually public. Uh, we're one of the only protocols that actually has made it public. It's in our terms of use. You can go check it out right now on damm.finance at the bottom. Um, so we try to keep everything incredibly transparent with all our users. Um, and then on the actual insurance side, like the actual underwriting, um, post November 1st, we're going to be launching our insurance, public insurance pool. Um, 5% of protocol revenue goes towards uh, subsidizing the insurance pool for anybody who wants to stake to it. Um, additionally, we're going to have 25% um, of liquidity bonding revenue go towards the insurance pool. So our goal is that we're 95 plus percent of the insurance pool after the first year. And also that um, our insurance pool is at least two times, hopefully three times the outstanding loans of the largest borrower on the platform. So if anything systematic happens in crypto uh, where several borrowers go under, the insurance pool is capable of at least covering you know, two to three X, the largest uh, outstanding loan borrower on the platform. Um, so that's really our goal on the insurance side. Um, Question yeah. on that pool. So are you going to hold that in stables or in a governance token? Uh, in stables, in stables. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because that, yeah. That's, that's one of the issues we saw with Maple, who, you know, mm -hmm. they do a great job underwriting, but uh, I think their initial design simply was that the, uh, the junior tranche, you're staking a combination of stable coins and the governance token. Mm -hmm. Liquidate that, it's you know a downward spiral, so it, it's not really good for the for the token holders. But this sounds uh, like a better implementation. Oh yeah, have you guys seen TrueFi? What happened to them this week? I have not. What did I miss? I am a big no. fan of TrueFi. I just think there's one thing. If I if I could like make a suggestion, if any TrueFi community members or like DAO members are listening, I, I'll make one suggestion. I think they should go with a cash insurance pool and not a governance insurance pool. So their, their current insurance pool is uh, entirely the true governance token. Um, and so what happens is in the case of a default, like the one they just had this week, they actually have to liquidate their governance token in the open market. And it's like, holy cow, that's like super dangerous. Like, I, I, I really don't want to see true FICO under. I want to see all the under collateralized lending platforms succeed because, you know, it's kind of like a rising tide lifts all ships, you know. Um, and so that's my suggestion. I think I think Maple has perfected the insurance model, and we're using a very similar model, um, you know, plus liquidity bonding, so that we're able to be a massive, you know, player in our own insurance pool. Um, but I think I think 
you're exactly right. Cash insurance only. You can't you can't be you know risking user funds with a governance token backing them, backing any default. It's, it's way too risky. And like just doing some rough back of the envelope calculations, it would not take more than like three to five million dollars in defaults to like completely wipe out their token. Um, so it's very very dangerous. Uh, so so that's that's my recommendation to TrueFi. Yeah, great. Um, and I think Maple are changing this, and uh, it's good, right? People should adopt this standard, and I'm, I'm pretty sure TrueFi will learn after this incident. Um, but on the recourse side, so you have a master loan agreement, so MLA, by the way, for people who didn't get that. Um, so I've wondered this also when looking at other other platforms like these, like, for example, Goldfinch, and I've been quite public about the question of, okay, well, for example, in their scenario, um, their, their current design is, okay, well, there's a legal agreement, but the recourse and the financing and the coordination of the recourse is kind of up to the borrowers. But realistically, if, if you have people in all these different jurisdictions that need to coordinate and have differing amounts of interest in that loan, I, I personally don't see that really working in practice. So since you guys aren't the primary borrower, how, how do you envision that happening? Like, and, and maybe too, you could talk about do the market makers have any collateral or is it just nothing and you guys just need to like litigate? Yeah, so uh, I guess to address the collateral question first, uh, it's totally on a borrower by borrower basis. So without giving away a name, um, one of our borrowers is a um, is not a completely market neutral trading firm. They have about 75 to 80% of their assets trading market neutral, but they do have a directional portion that's uh, segregated from their main fund. Of market neutral trading strategies. Um, so as a result of that volatility increase, we are asking for collateral. Um, so we do actually collateralize a portion of the loans depending on the trading firm and their asset and their strategies. Um, so it's very much on a borrower by borrower basis. Um, something I think that's super dangerous is uh, there are a few lending platforms. I, I you know, I don't want to like name names here, but they know who they are that basically don't have an internal credit risk team. And what they do is they take Credora's data or whoever they're getting their data recommendations from or their credit Oracle recommendations from. And they're just setting whatever the bar, whatever that trading firm or that, that, uh, that credit provider um, re recommends as their borrow limit on chain as that limit. Um, so they're not really doing any of their own due diligence on the borrowers. And so I think that's going to be a huge problem over the next like year or two. You might see one or two lending protocols actually have massive defaults that they can't cover because of that, because they're over lending to a borrower that doesn't really deserve an uncollateralized loan, let's say. Um, and then the first part of your question about the recourse, I think that's a really great question. That's why I think an insurance pool is so crucial because these recourses, as you're seeing with like Mount Gox, might take years. So you really do need the ability to repay or make your lenders whole, or at least as close to whole as possible, while the corporate entity or whatever the legal structure is of the lending protocol can actually pursue recourse. Um, so that's, I, I totally agree. I think it's one of those situations where like, you have to have some level of on-chain insurance, whether it's like a Nexus mutual pool, or it's like some kind of... Um, you know, direct to on-chain insurance uh, in your own protocol. I think both are incredibly important. Um, yeah, and I, I'm particularly worried about Goldfinch just because I they're not really, 
you know, they're kind of lending to an assorted medley of uh, different borrower types. They're not really lending to any specific one type. I, see, I know they have like a lot of open loans to like smaller banks, which I think is a little risky. Um, but yeah, yeah, totally agree though. Well, now that we're in the risk mitigation uh, part of the podcast, so two questions. And you said that it goes on a company-by-company uh, company basis on how much you can lend out. But can you give out like a certain ratio? Is it on the lower end? Is it in the higher end? Because I guess that the actors involved in actually lending out the tokens are also interested in that and the follow-up question to to this is how they can you know put their token up will it pass a governance proposal or is it you know something that they have just to contact you and that's it yeah so it's it's um it's one of those things where so we're not a DAO, and i don't think we're ever going to be we're probably going to be publishing in the next hopefully next week or two our plans on um decentralization and kind of how we want to structure our protocol. It'll be a little bit different than a DAO, but kind of in the same rough ethos. Um, I, I think under collateralized lending protocols have to have a centralized credit risk entity. I don't think you can democratize the credit risk process. I think DYDX tried, and I don't think it's worked very well. I think it, the you have to have a team that has you know significant credit risk experience, um, preferably in TradFi like our credit risk team does. Um, and then, pardon me, the first part of your question was about the um, how, how, oh, uh, how we disclose our underwriting. Um, so I guess something that I think we want to do that I, I think we're in the middle of writing our first now, uh, I don't know if it'll be available immediately when we announce who our lenders are, but specifically to, to let the community know about how we set our collateralization ratios and how we decide upon the credit limits for every borrower, we want to start releasing public research um, to everyone. Um, that kind of looks very similar to like TradFi public research on like, you know, different stocks, things like that, that basically detail exactly how we made our decisions, what on what collateralization ratios we set for what borrowers uh, based on their trading strategies, based on their AUM, things like that, um, so that we can really illustrate to our community the level of experience our team has. Um, and so uh, typically the way we actually, and to answer your question way more specifically about how we you know, decide upon collateralization ratios. Um, you know, for a market neutral trading firm that has some directional risk, like the one I was mentioning earlier, we're asking for like upwards of 70 to 80% collateralization. So it's definitely not like on the lower end. Um, and that's for a mostly like overwhelmingly market neutral firm. For any directional trading firm, we've gotten in interest from quite a few uh, that are looking to directionally borrow. Um, we're going to require significant over collateralization. Uh, so any trading firm that's doing, you know, primarily directional trading, um, we're going to ask for uh, upwards of 130%, 140% collateralization at a minimum uh, with margin calls if it ever gets below a certain level of uh, certain ratio. Um, so, yeah. Hope that answers your question. Yeah, follow up on this. So if... For a directional firm, you require over collateralization. Then, in the current market, wouldn't it be more beneficial for them to take a direct, sorry, a volatile borrow from a money market, and then maybe to use something like IPOR and to hedge the interest rate out? 
Uh, the I think the problem with using a money market right now is money markets, I think, are very susceptible to either smart contract. They're, they're either vulnerable to one of two things. They're either vulnerable to smart contract attack via like cream finance, what you've seen with them, um, or potentially like some kind of Oracle risk. Or the other issue is that they just won't have the asset listed. So kind of the most the most interesting thing is like I, I think the money market on Ethereum right now with the most assets that's the most secure is Euler, and most of the assets that are listed on Euler you can't um, I don't believe you can supply as collateral or borrow. They're typically isolated. Most of them are isolated markets. Um, I mean, in theory, as Euler scales, that might make sense. But I think there are a lot of assets that are like not either not on Ethereum or maybe they're not listed on Euler. That you know, we we're probably going to be the only place that a trading firm can borrow that asset on. So I think that like is kind of a big differentiator. And I think the other thing too is like our goal is to set all our pool rates, all the borrow rates, at basically where they are across the markets. Um, so if a borrower is putting up 130% collateral, we want their net rate to be basically exactly the same as they would borrow it uh, on a money market. Um, so kind of you know it, it would be kind of Bad if we weren't. It would be bad if we were like mispriced, you know, that'd be not, that wouldn't be good. If, it, if there was a liquid lending market and we're significantly overpriced, that'd be kind of a, a bad, bad look. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I guess you could dial both things in, right? Like more collateral, yeah. lower, lower rates and so forth. Yeah. Like that's how we set our stablecoin rates. I mean, we're, we're, we're not trying, I think stablecoins and BTC and ETH are like the most liquid lending markets in crypto. Like we're pretty much mirroring or averaging out like the borrow rates across all the major centralized lenders, Maple, TrueFi, Clearpool. Um, we're, we're kind of like right in line with all of those guys for our, for our under collateralized rates. Yeah. Okay. So now, now that we are talking about yield and I guess the, the money question that, you know, most end users are interested in, uh, your current yield for example, for USDC without the, uh, B them is around one one point three percent. How can you in the future make that you know a bit in the higher end? And do you have any plans besides you know just giving out governance rewards, which everyone in crypto is doing, and apparently it's not a good idea because you're <laughs> just you're basically uh, liquidating you're... yourself in the longer in, exactly. in, in the long run. So yeah, I, I guess that the question is, will you charge higher rates from uh, the borrowers in the future? Yeah. So uh, the reason it's 1% right now is there's only one borrower onboarded and that's System 9. Uh, we're about to issue and create a significant number of new loans. Uh, so that borrow rate or that supply rate in USDC um, or in kind, as they say, um, will be you know pretty much in line with what you see on like Maple and TrueFi. So upwards of like six to nine percent depending on the stable coin um so you're about to see those rates jump substantially um you know based on the loans we're about to announce an issue um across like all the stable coin markets so uh the way we're actually doing it is uh no matter what stable coin market you borrow in um or you deposit in we're creating loans equally uh for a borrower so let's say a borrower borrows um usdc we're equally breaking that up among the USDC pool, the compound USDC pool, and the Aave USDC pool. That way, you know, no matter what asset you deposit, you're getting, you know, borrower exposure. Um, and so those rates are going to substantially go up this week. Um, so the 
and we're, I, I totally agree. I think liquidity mining is a failure. Um, I think it like at the beginning for the first like six months to a year was really cool and novel, but it kind of got gamified a bit too much. Now that there's literally funds dedicated to yield farming, um, like entire hedge funds. Um, so we're only doing governance mining for free for one month, this month only. Um, so if you want to get free BDAM and get free DAMM, this is the only time you're ever going to get it. Uh, so after this, we're turning on something called liquidity bonding, um, which is our form of liquidity mining. Um, it's a bit different. It's way more like ohm bonding, but actually better for the user. So, you know, ohm bonds, if you're not familiar, you buy a bond on Monday um, for, you know, $100 per ohm. They bake in a discount. So on Friday, you're going to get your ohm at $95 per ohm. And then you basically just pray that by Friday, Ohm's not gone down $5. Um, our model is we're continuously liquidity mining you bonds that you can redeem at a discount to the current market price of DAMM at any time. Um, so you'll be still getting a baked in PL, but um, a portion of that revenue will go towards the protocol controlled value that gets restaked into the insurance pool and into the main pools as well. Um, so kind of like a different different model on liquidity mining where um, the protocol actually does get to capture a portion of the value. Um, and actually, uh, you know, by liquidity mining and yield farming, you're actually helping the protocol grow too. So, yeah. So just going to echo my understanding of uh, own bonding back to you to make sure I get it, but also maybe for the, the listenership to, to better intuit it. So basically, you or your treasury holds uh, them and you will sell it when I guess it is lucrative to do so, in which case you will allow people to buy it at a discount and then the money doesn't go to a third party on an AMM, but instead it goes to your treasury and over time, let's say five days or something, the, the purchaser locks up their, I don't know, their die or USDC or whatever, they, they get the dam in return. Is that right? Yeah, that's it's almost exactly right. The only thing I would cha change a little bit is um, uh, it, we don't just give out BDAM when it's profitable. Um, the idea is that we're continuously liquidity mining BDAM to people at all times. So you won't stop getting BDAM after November 1st. Um, there will just be a baked in, I guess, charge or fee out of the liquidity mining, basically. Um, and so you're exactly right. The way The way it works is... Um, after November 1st, when we stop the free liquidity mining, what ends up happening is if you would like to convert your BDAM to DAM, you redeem it. Um, and let's say the discount rate is 20%, right? So uh, if, let's say, DAMM is trading at $1, um, you would redeem one BDAMM and 80 cents of USDC um, for one DAMM that's worth a dollar. So you end up making a 20 cent profit if you liquidate immediately. Um, so it's still baked into the actual calculus. Um, but that 80 cents that you pay in USDC to redeem goes to the protocol treasury. Um, so that's exactly how own bonds work. Um, the way they work is, you know, like I mentioned, you buy a bond on Monday and uh, you get your 5% discount on Friday. Um, ours is just a little bit different in that instead of, you know, buying it and waiting and you're taking price risk, um, our bonds are actually just liquidity mined to you. So you don't have to worry about taking any DAM and price risk. The profit is baked in. So, yeah. Yeah, but at, at a certain point that will end because OM in comparison to yours and you know, tell me if I'm wrong, it, it was and it is an inflationary token and you mentioned that yours is not. How will this be continuously? 
Like, yeah, so DAMM does have a hard cap uh, of 250 million tokens. Um, and so there will be a point in which BDAMM rewards uh, end and bonding will end. Um, kind of we're forecasting that's going to be about five to seven years. Um, uh, and we think by then we'll have a significant enough treasury uh, that the protocol can then, you know, substantially or s- subsist entirely on fee sharing to the token holders from lending. Uh, which is baked in, which is put into the token as well. Uh, we have fee sharing turned on. Terrific. Okay. It's a very interesting design. Also, yeah, we're, we're not trying to be the Federal Reserve of crypto, you know, like, um, so we, we, we felt that we didn't feel the need to make the token permanently inflationary. Yeah. <laughs> right. But but the design is really interesting because, okay, so you you basically, you have time limited liquidity mining simply to distribute the token into many hands, right? And get people involved. And judging from what we've seen in the community, like people seem to really relate to that. So that, that's pretty cool. Um, and thereafter, you're basically building a treasury. Um, and even though you may do that at a little bit of a price loss, um, it does give you uh, a treasury to work with. So I guess one of the questions that spawns is, what will you do with that treasury? Because I, I suppose that's different from uh, money you may have raised in private financing. Correct. Yes. So that's kind of the the ultimate question is, well, what do you do with PCV? And that's kind of what I think killed Ohm. Or at least Ohm's still going, but Ohm could have been the biggest protocol in crypto, you know, by now. Um, if they, you know, had a really strong um, central direction for what they want to do with their protocol controlled liquidity. Um, so I think that's actually kind of the biggest flaw of Ohm and kind of what inspired us to do a bonding style model like this. Um, so what we're doing is we're actually going to be uh, using the treasure. So 75% of the liquidity bonding revenue gets auto staked back on the platform. So that's either in major cap assets like BTC, ETH, USDC, USDT, DAI, um, or even in altcoins that we're earning and generating revenue on, you know, like I think a few that we're specifically targeting to hold uh, in the protocol treasury immediately are things like FXS or Frax. Um, those are kind of two early ones. Butterfly as well. Um, there are a few tokens that we're kind of internally targeting that we want to grow our treasury of immediately. And then over time, continue to kind of, you know, pick up other tokens. I think Comp and Ave are two tokens as well. We'd like to become major governance players in both protocols. So we want to hold both on the token in the protocol treasury as well, um, potentially to bribe both markets as well um, for additional liquidity mining rewards and liquidity mining incentives. Um, so those are kind of like the core tenants of the protocol treasury. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing. So we're, we're rehypothecating it. And then the other 25% that I didn't mention is going towards insurance uh, in stable coins. Uh, so it's going to just be immediately restaked into insurance that will not be rehypothecated. It's just going to be sitting in insurance. Yeah. That, yeah, that, that's elegant, the insurance component. And I guess what you could do too with the 75% that you basically borrow out, right? Sorry, that you lend out. Um, yep. You could technically direct that yield to the existing borrower so that they basically get amplified yield, right? More capital. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you. I mean, we could subsidize borrow rates with that. We could, you know, rebate borrowers based on their loan volume. I mean, there's a whole lot you can do once you have a treasury of that size um, and the protocol controls it. And I think that's the other thing about like DAMM, the token, is 
it's somewhat governance over the protocol treasury, just like Ohm is over over the Ohm treasury, but also it's the ability to govern the cash flows of DIMM. So 10% of the NIM or the net interest margin, that's what borrowers pay, um, goes directly to the stakers as well. So they can kind of decide, hey, do we just want to capture this all or do we want to lower the borrower rates? Like, how do we want to like make the best possible economic use of the protocol? Um, to create the most efficient lending market. Uh, so, yeah, absolutely. Well, now that we are discussing rewards, you have done an airdrop, which was basically people were people were liquidity mining without them knowing that they are liquidity mining and they got the airdrop in uh, for that. But on top of that, you have done a vampire attack on Ave and Compound. How did they welcome this vampire attack? Are you, you know, do you have a relationship with them? Uh, and <laughs> also, why not directly liquidity, you know, uh, put liquidity in the current pools? Yeah, so that's that's a very good question. So yeah, we, we did do an airdrop. Um, so it was to everybody who staked on the platform before uh, October 5th when uh, the BDAMM token came out. Um, we wanted to do that just to support our initial liquidity providers and kind of give them a little bit of extra skin in the game for being early on the protocol. Um, I, I'll just kind of maybe give a little bit of a hint on here that that definitely won't be the last time we reward our early users. So, uh, you know, if you're... You know, hopefully looking for some future potential hidden gains, definitely, uh, you know, lend to the DAMM protocol. Um, and then the second part, the vampire attack. The funny thing is we're, we're kind of branding it as a vampire attack, but it's not a, like, true evil vampire attack. It's almost like this funny remora attack. If you're not familiar with what a remora is, that's the fish that, like, swims next to sharks and like eats and picks up off the all the like parasites and like all the uh you know food off their teeth basically and cleans them and stuff and makes them actually better it actually helps them um and so that's actually what we're doing with the with uh compound and ave we're actually it's it's a vampire attack and for the listeners i'm doing air quotes um because we're actually helping ave and compound we're generating them revenue by getting users to stake onto their platform and then stake their Compound and Aave LP tokens onto DAM. And we're lending those LP tokens directly to market makers for 10, 20 times the yield. So we're boosting Compound and Aave's yield, kind of like the same way you see Convex boosting Curve's yield. So it's actually a very, very like synergistic uh, attack Again, in air quotes, um, we don't personally know anybody at Compound or Ave. If Stanny's listening, um, very funny. I, I did a hackathon like a few weeks ago. We were recruiting some devs in Berlin, and uh, I actually got to sit next to Stanny and pitch him my hackathon idea. I thought that was very funny because it was like two days before we announced the uh, the actual like attack or remora thing. Um, so yeah, I, I love Ave and Compound. I think they're both incredibly innovative protocols and, um, I, I'm glad that we're able to actually build a product on top of theirs that actually helps them. So yeah, if you're an Ave or Compound, uh, um, you know, I guess, uh, high up, hit me up or we'd love to partner. Yeah. And will the Ave and Compound still be on after the 30 or 30, yeah. 31 of October, or, you know, you're planning to stop that and incorporate other protocols? 
Oh, so so we will keep the Ave and Compound LP tokens. So you can you will oh you will permanently be able to stake Ave and Compound LP tokens for boosted yield always. And uh, actually, the other thing we're doing too is um, we're actually every protocol we go to, we're going to list the LP tokens of that of that protocol as well for money mark for their biggest money market. Um, so we're going to be launching on Avalanche soon, and uh, we'll be lending uh, and borrowing Banky LP tokens. Um, and then the same thing when we go to like Arbitrum, same thing when we go to Optimism, Verachain. You know, we put we plan on doing this on every chain we integrate with. And I think the reason for that is I think these yield bearing tokens are actually very in very much high demand. Uh, I think about I think about half or more of the loans we're issuing to market makers in stable coins this week and next are going to be mostly made up of Aave and Compound liquidity pool tokens that we're unwrapping to lend to them. So uh, it's a, it, I think it's in a huge market that no one's kind of tapping into right now. So, yeah. A, qu a question on the modeling side for that. So I would think that since there is impermanent loss, that if that is a unit V2 type LP position, that the dollar denominated value or even the E for what, what you know, I guess whatever one of the two sides is for the underlying ecosystems key token like Avalanche or E value is changing. So how would you deal with that? Because then you would have not only a lend and a borrow token price that uh, impacts collateral value, right? A lump of value, uh, but you'd have an additional one. How would you do that? Well, so all of the tokens, all of the LP tokens that we're listing right now are single assets. So there's no impermanent loss baked in. So like you lend an Aave compound LP token, there's no actual, you know, risk of a DPEG or risk of a, um, you know, uh, of impermanent loss in lending. Um, oh, sorry. I'm confused. Oh, no, no, you're good. I, I, oh, thought, I thought, you know, LP token... AMM LP token. So therefore, yeah. you know, I, I thought that you meant like if you vampire attack, uh, let's say Ave or Compound, that you would also take the primary LP position on AMMs and then take that yeah. yield bearing position and then allow that to be lent. Ah, no. So, so that actually brings up a very interesting point. So, so currently, all we're lending is single asset liquidity pool tokens, right? So, by, or not? I guess LP meaning liquidity provider tokens is kind of the way we use it. But yeah, so they call them Ave and Compound tokens, or A tokens and C tokens. So that's all we're lending right now. But there's a new protocol I can't recall the name of that we're looking into right now, or our research team's looking into um, that is lending liquid. They basically tokenize uh, Uni V3 positions. Um, so that I think is also very interesting. If we can get the modeling exactly right, we can also lend, uh, uni V3 and uni V2 LP positions too. So I'm, I'm very much a fan of like, I, I think it's a huge untapped market. Like why, why, you know, unwrap these assets and restake them on other platforms when you can just lend the yield bearing receipt token, um, which is effectively the exact same thing, you know? It's baked into the smart contracts. Um, so we will definitely be listing more LP tokens coming soon. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of the model. And if we can get it exactly right with, uh, you know, Uni V2, Uni V3 or like AMM LP tokens, um, I, I really think we can lend them. And, and I think it's a good idea. Yeah. Well, that's great. But I think we, we didn't touch upon, you know, the current roadmap that you guys have and the race and where the company is right now so if you could walk us through you know about the race that you had the tokenomics people are very interested in 
the token and you know i know you mentioned that there's a a hard cap on that but if you can go more in depth would it be great yeah yeah so we we just announced the raise um we've closed uh two million and there's a few more investors that are joining late that we'll be announcing the names of as well uh soon uh so we raised two million um we made that public uh we have some amazing investors pretty much all our strategics uh on the either you know lending side or on the borrowing side we have quite a few market makers in the round chronos research is one ledger prime is one uh system nine uh, our incub incubating company as well um as well as a few uh l1s one of the uh, founders of um banky is also an angel investor as well as barra chain um so we have quite a few lenders and protocols on um and then in terms of like where we are on the roadmap side, so we just published a new roadmap. Um, you can check it out on our Twitter page as well as in our Discord. Um, kind of the big milestones we're targeting are um, cross-chain integration. So after November 1st, we're going to begin integration into new chains. Um, so you can get ready. We will be launching, as I mentioned earlier, on Avalanche. Kind of the other chains that we plan on launching on, of course, Barachain. Um, can't wait for them to go live. I love the Barra homies and the Barra friends. Um, I, I'm hoping I can, uh, you know, hopefully one day afford a bong Barra uh, so I can have one as well. Although the floor I've seen has kind of skyrocketed. Um, so yeah, uh, friends with them and uh, we will be launching on Barra Chain, Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon, you know, all the ETH L2s, um, as well as, you know, all the other EVM compatible chains, Moonbeam, uh, Aurora, uh, things like that. Um, so very much excited to launch with them. We, we have a good public partnership with uh, Arbitrum as well um, as our uh, Avalanche and uh, uh, Avalanche and Polygon. So, um, yeah, very excited. That's kind of, the, I would say, the big roadmap. And there's some few technical things like we want to let put put public flash loans on every token. I think that's kind of a big milestone for us. Uh, Probably Q1, I think, next year is when that's going to be uh, live, hopefully. And then, uh, yeah, I think, like, the the funny, like, last uh, thing on our roadmap we publish is to put the AMM in DAM. So, you know, I'll kind of let you, uh, let everybody leave that up to their own imaginations. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> Good one. Uh, and you mentioned you want to go cross-chain. Will you deploy on every single chain yourself or... Will you use someone like uh, Layer Zero to do that? How do you plan to to go cross chain? Yeah, so uh, I, I'm thinking what we're going to do initially is deploy uniquely on every chain, and then over time build in features through Layer Zero or another cross chain messaging protocol that allow borrowers to take out loans um, on Ethereum, and maybe that Ethereum loan position bridges assets over from four or five different other chains as well, whatever the most optimal loan structure is. Um, so I think cross-chain integration is really interesting when you consider tokens that are listed on multiple chains, like USDC, for example. Um, you could have a loan, you could you could issue a million dollar loan and have that loan be, you know, five different chains USDC. And I think that would be a very, very cool and efficient integration of something like Layer Zero. Um, so that's kind of the, the way we're treating cross-chain. I think it's going to have to be independent to start with. That way there's no kind of bridging risk or anything like that. Um, and then after that, over time, we can definitely start getting, you know, cross-chain functionality and swapping and cross-chain loan repayments and things like that built in. So, yeah. 
So what's your vision for integrations on top of them? Like you have already spoken about the DAO partnership side, which is very, very logical. Um, you know, cross-chain expansion, working with or integrating more, more money markets and their liquidity provision tokens. Um, but how about other people um, going to hackathons right now or thinking about what to build? Um, how can they build on top of the the framework you've laid down and are creating? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. So that's kind of what I think the AMM part of uh, DAMM is kind of going to be in the long term. Um, I think kind of the the big technical feat that like. If, if people are interested in collaborating with DAMM, kind of the, the thing I think crypto needs right now is I think it needs perhaps some kind of like a DYDX style DEX, whether it's order book or AMM that's run on a roll up or an L2 that you can trade liquidity provider or I guess LP positions on. So I think like the next wave of DEXs is not going to be just trading uh, the direct spot asset. It's going to be derivative DEXs, whether it's like a liquidity pool token or like an options market like open or something like or per protocol, something like that. I think there's going to be a big new wave of um, de derivative DEXs. And so I, I, I think that's probably like, if you want to build on top of DAMM, trading D tokens is kind of like, I think going to be like a huge future protocol for a huge future thing for us. Because like, imagine... Imagine you provide money, you provide tokens to a money market protocol, right? Whether it's over or under collateralized. And then just like on Curve, you would also get not only the lending fees from, you know, the, the interest you earn from borrowers paying interest for, for borrowing your assets, but you also earn the trading swap fees on top of that. And then you realize, holy cow, you're like doubling your yield without having to buy two times as many assets. You're just... You're depositing $100 and you're earning the yield that you'd earn from $200 half divided on both protocols. It's, that, it's crazy. Yeah. That, that, that's really interesting, especially when you think about, you know, one of the things that makes Curve so dominant is that it can handle such large amounts with very little privilege. But the downside of that is that there's a lot of idle capital sitting in those pools. And you guys would have a reason to be get that capital in the first place because you provide above market interest rate. So uh, mm -hmm. I love that. Okay, in interesting. So um, you're basically also saying like, okay, people, if you see the merit to this, like uh, hit us up, start building, um, and uh, let's see if we can get there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, hit us up if you're interested in that kind of uh, that kind of a protocol design. That's kind of what I think. Um, I, I think. I think a couple of protocols have tried it with varying success. I know Ave has. Um, I just think it's one of those things where you, I, I don't know if an AMM will work. I think it might have to be an order book DEX or a centralized order book uh, or even like a club. But um, I, I think it's one of those things where if it's nailed, it like becomes the king DEX, like the king exchange. Um and I think like you already see that you already see that this business model works really well in TradFi. So like if you go on like Fidelity and you onboard and you have stock, you can lend that stock and at any time liquidate it or, you know, earn yield on it from lending it or trade it or do whatever you want with it, basically. So this kind of model idea already exists in TradFi. It just needs to be ported over into crypto. Uh, so, yeah. That's really interesting stuff. Uh, great. Okay, so hey, we're we're coming up in an hour. So 
is there anything you want to ask the audience? Um, you've already dropped some awesome alpha, uh, but how can they get started? And uh, what are the few things you think they should do when they uh, explore for them? So yeah, what, what, what I immediately recommend anybody does is if, if you're a power user of Compound or Aave, uh, you can boost your yield on LP tokens, lending them on DAM. So definitely check that out. Um, and then if you're interested in learning more about uncollateralized lending, check out our Discord, check out our uh, our Twitter. We post all the time. Uh, I'm very active on our Discord as well. If you have very technical questions or want to learn more or even potentially you know, contribute to the protocol, we're always welcoming. We're hiring. Um, so you know, if you're a talented person, definitely let us know. Um, we have a lot of institutions reaching out to us as well. So if you're on the institutional side, um, you know, we're onboarding institutional clients as borrowers, lenders, all that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, more than happy to kind of, you know, take all inquiries. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I have a specific question for the audience because it's kind of like an ethereal thing and I can't give an answer, you know. Um, but if you do have questions, it, my question is, you know, like, I guess I don't think it's really a question. But if you if you do have questions, hit us up on our Discord. Uh, more than happy to answer anything. It's a it's a fun place. Uh, we, mm. We've explored it, and you guys are really on top of it. So uh, we love to see it. Um, okay, well, hey, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we will put a bunch of the things we discussed in the show notes. And uh, to all the listeners, thank you for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks so much, guys. It was a pleasure.